Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music. Hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and radio host Emily Reese. Long ago, certain sounds in classical music were considered devilish. And once upon a time, there was a spirit that was considered the Green Devil. And Jill and Emily will dissect both in this episode. Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Hi, Jill Mott. Hello, Emily Reese. How's it going? I'm excited to talk about devilish things today. The devil. Whoa, uh, uh, <laughs> That's the scariest episode yet. <laughs> Especially because Emily, Emily and I are trapped in about a four square foot space with a lot of absinthe. That's why. <laughs> so much absinthe in the corner. Oh, man. Yeah. No, we're going to talk about some devilish items in music and mm-hmm. then the equivalent in a spirit, which I, I didn't have a hard time coming up with, but I tried to, like, I went to a lot of metaphorical things like stuck fermentations and... And I just, it didn't seem right. And I thought, oh my gosh, what's the only spirit beer slash wine that I know of that's been consider- considered like the devil's plaything? Yeah. And it uh, it was, and to some people maybe still is, La Fille Verte, which is the green fairy. <laughs> but it became known uh, qu- quite quickly as the green devil. Absinthe. Yes. It's not even green. It doesn't? I mean... This is army green. I and suppose. This is, and they, this is because they're, these are only natural things to color them. Oh. Which sometimes they can be like this neon green because they're yeah. not of good quality. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Shades of green. Shades of green. I can see it now. One sort of... I mean, if you were to look at it and not know what it is, one that we're going to taste looks literally like extra virgin olive oil. Yeah. Like something Turkish, something very deep dark mm-hmm. and then another uh looks like the faintest almost like a leaf that is just start it's green and it's just starting to go through senescence like it's just starting to turn yellow but is still green hmm. so they're opposite ends of the spectrum for sure and we'll we'll find out how different they are yeah. in flavor in mere minutes love that so tell me about the devil in music. Where are we going to go? We're going to talk about an interval called the tritone, which got a bad rap back in the chant days of medieval music. So, yeah, we're going to talk about why the tritone, how, how that came about. If we were to start somewhere with tritones, how did this devilish interval or chord or sound, how did it get its name or why is it called such? Well, uh, back in those times, um, you know, 700-ish, you know, around there, back in the day, (laughs) (laughs) pre-1600. Days of Clovis and Charlemagne and probably the spreading of the gospel. Charlemagne for sure. Okay. Uh, We had uh, Gregorian chant in the churches, and they used a different harmonic system, and music sounded quite different because tonality was uh, considered of differently. And the uh, church modes that were used, there were seven of them. There are seven of them. And we uh, easily explain them by using the white keys on the piano because that's 
how you get them. C to C is Ionian mode. D to D is Dorian. E to E is Phrygian. F to F is Lydian. You know what I mean? So yeah. Just, okay. And all those that I named, including all the way up to through the sixth mode, which is Aeolian, all of those have uh, perfect intervals in them, like the perfect fifth and the perfect fourth. And these are, you know, Pythagorean intervals, right? Like the ratio is three to two or whatever. Uh, but that seventh scale does not. So when we get to Locrian mode, which is the seventh one built on B to B, uh, we don't have a perfect fifth. Like, let's just listen to, to one that does. Please. Yeah. Please. So here's one that does have a, have a perfect fifth would be Mixolydian mode from G to G. So here we go. So we have very lovely okay. in there if we want it. It sounds so pretty. It sounds so pretty. Okay. When we get to Locrian mode, though, it doesn't sound so pretty. And that's scary. So scary. So scary. That would be the piano, the and piano maker's fault. So no, imperfect. So it, imperfect. Everybody wants to hear not 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 this. This sounds much more pleasing. All the modes would be able to do this, except Locrian ends up sounding like this. And that became a problem. And so we're like, never, you know, the rules were don't use it. It's called the devil in music, this interval, this imperfect fifth uh, called a tritone. And it's a, it's a fascinating interval and it gets kind of technical and I'm sorry about that, but um, there's but that's lots of- that's what makes of, scores and pours so cool. <laughs> exactly. And there's lots of fun music that we'll listen to in just a little bit too. So Sweet. Just to- wrap our heads around sort of the genesis of absinthe and how it gets to its devilish life or, or part in its lifespan, because obviously there's a resurgence now of a lot of different absinthe producers uh, throughout the world. But um, the Greeks and Hippocrates, millennia ago, people were steeping wormwood in their wine or their spirit in a way to get wormwood into their system, right? <laughs> because it was known to help with menstrual cramps, aid in childbirth, um, help with, with things like jaundice and aches and pains, etc. And so this isn't like a new thing with the French and the Swiss at the end of the 1700s, right? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But fast forward to the end of the 1700s and someone by the name of Pierre Ordinaire, um, I believe he was a doctor and he came up with a... Holy Trinity, many call it, of herbs and like, I guess you've got fennel, you've got anise, which both considered herbs, and then you have wormwood, which those three together and then depending on, you know, what distillery they're going to add their own special blend to color or mm -hmm. um, botanicals, etc. To, to make their own house flavor. But um, we have the genesis of like actual absinthe starting in the early 1800s, it getting sold around Switzerland, around France. And we see a, a small like surge in production. Um, starting about in 1830s, we have 
soldiers going to Northern Africa, conquering a lot of different countries in Northern Africa, Algiers, etc. And of course, wine was getting shipped down for the troops, but also so was absinthe to spike their wine and their water. It was an extra jolt, um, probably for morale, but it was also helping with things like dysentery, pains. And when the soldiers came back to France, just like soldiers coming back from southern France in the States, they brought back a taste for rosé. And then with tourism, there was more of a thirst for rosé here in the United States. Same thing happens in France. Soldiers come back, they want to drink absinthe. Distilleries start to produce more and more absinthe. Then it becomes this bourgeois kind of thing. Not only that, but we've got anywhere from 2 million to 10 million liters being produced by the end of like the 1940s, depending on the source you consult. 30 absinthe, yeah, 30 absinthe distilleries. It's still less than 10% of alcohol consumption when we think of brandy and wine and everything Mm -hmm. else that was getting produced Mm -hmm. there. Here or there? In France. In In France, France. okay. And so... When things started to go south was in the 1860s, a psychiatrist, a renowned psychiatrist in France, his name was Valentin Magnin. Basically, he was the French authority on mental illness, first and foremost. But his, Hmm. what really led to the demise of absinthe was some, some hidden agendas, basically. You had a lot of people that were, you know, had a temperance movement that they were fighting for, and other people that were part of the wine community, wine producers, wine brokers that were dealing with a wine shortage, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But um, this guy was worried about the degeneration of the French race in the 1860s. And he was saying, like, you know, everybody's drinking too much, and absinthe is, like, a different thing than alcoholism. You have absinthism, (laughs) and then you have alcoholism. Okay. And what he was trying to say through a lot of different and I won't even go into how um, poorly put together a lot of his tests were and, and, and things like that. But he was saying that wormwood, mm-hmm. which the component to wormwood that, you know, everybody says is responsible for these hallucinogenic effects and psychotropic effects, et cetera, is a, a terpene or a collective organic compounds called thujone. And so he was saying... Basically, that anybody that drinks a lot of absinthe is going to hallucinate, they're going to have seizures, and they're going to end up with mental illness in a way different capacity than if they were to be like a drunk beggar yeah. on wine yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, and so it was like his MO to have absinthe go down the tubes, and that's, wow. where, it, that's where it starts, and we'll, uh, we'll get into more sad absinthe demise after some music, I think. Okay, let's listen to some Dance Macabre so we can hear that tritone interval right away. So written in 1874, right? Yes. Sweet. Yes, it was. Camille Sasson, French composer. Love this guy. Uh, the piece, Dance Macabre, uh, is, a, is actually a tone poem, and it's a really quick one. It's like six and a half minutes long or something like that, but it just tells a story. Um, For those of you who haven't, heard our tone poem episode yeah click back and listen to it because it's gives a whole um it'll give a lot more dimension obviously to what a tone poem is but something that tells Mm -hmm. a story that i think if you know the story of dance macabre it's gonna have a lot it's gonna have more substance than if you're just flip on some headphones and listen to it yeah 
yeah, in and it's, of itself. It's super fun uh, story, and um, basically you hear the cho- the clock strike twelve. You're going to hear a harp play te- twelve tones, and some really calming chords in the strings, and then a violin solo comes in playing tritones uh, to kind of wake up the dead, and they have this all night dance, and then the rooster crows. Um, but anyway, yeah, let's listen to a little bit of dance macabre. So hearing those intervals was probably kind of shocking to the audience at first. It's very dissonant. I love this piece, though. I love it, too. And I loved how um, the... Supposedly the xylophones, I don't know if it's true or not, but the xylophones represent like the rattling of the bones. Yes. And it's a super cool piece. But I think that that's a great way, not only because it happens right in the first 30 seconds yeah. of the piece, but it's also, it's not not that it would be hard to pick it out, but it's not muffled by or competing with any other right substance exactly. in the orchestra. It's just right there. We're going to hear it one more time. Well, there you go. There's a quick crash course in, in the dry tone. <laughs> Though that sound made me want to drink absinthe. I heard yeah. it and I was like, <laughs> let's drink something that's 120 proof. <laughs> let's, do, <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. So um, we'll talk a little bit about a murder and some banning, but let's sip. Awesome. As we do that. Okay. So, uh, the first one I wanted to pour was a local. Both of these are local and the fact that they're both made in the Midwest and um, there's a small, maybe contingent of absinthe drinkers that think only the best absinths are produced in Switzerland, okay. produced you know um, illegally in France. But actually, a lot of if you consult with a lot of people that drink a lot of absinthe, they mm-hmm. say a lot of shit is produced with you know <laughs> fake coloring all over the world. Right? Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah. Um, so this is some pretty great world class stuff here. Um, one is from, and I'm pouring this only because it's got a lighter color first. So, Jay Carver, they are out of Carver County, so west of us here in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. And they've created an absinthe that has, of course, wormwood, of course, fennel and anise. But um, they're using an all-produced locally, which is really cool. Um, their base spirit, so before they're actually you know, turning this into absinthe, you need a base spirit of some sort. And so they are using a local grappa that's done from local grapes. So basically what you're doing is you've got grape skins left, pomace, or in in Italy they call it grappa. You take that pomace, you rehydrate it a bit, macerate, and then you distill that into a grappa. So it when you, people smell grappa and they think it smells kind of harsh and kind of like the rests of grapes, yeah. they're right because it is. You sometimes get the it's the skins, the essence of the skins, the pips. So this is um, local grapes that they've made for their base spirit, which is very – it's unlike the next one we'll taste, which is a, a grain-based base spirit. I just never knew absinthe had a base spirit. Yeah. I mean it has to – they have to get the herbs in somehow, right? So they take their base spirit and they will – 
flavor that, and then they, they may redistill it. So now you're left with a clear, very flavor, flavorful spirit. And then okay. they may add a few different botanicals to further flavor it. Um, but then that's usually when they'll color because if you keep distilling things, your, your spirit's going to keep coming out clear. So um, that's when here they use local clover. So the only thing oh, wow. that's giving this color is clover, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, and so this is Jay Carver's absinthe. Cheers. Cheers. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. So first of all, you notice the color's nice and light, like I mentioned on this one. What do you think the nose smells like? It's very strong. Well, and, and keep in <laughs> mind, we don't smell spirits. I mean, I try not to smell them like I smell wine, right? So you kind of like... Give it a little once by your nose, you know, give it, let it, let it, right when you start to smell it, move it away. It smells sugary to me, like, but I know, I mean, I don't. Does sugar have a smell? No, I know, but you know what, you know what, it smells maybe fruity then, but it shouldn't. Does it smell black licorice a little bit, like fennel? Because to me it does. A little. And that and star anise, I should have brought some so you could smell some. Um, what about... I get something herbal and I don't know what it is. And this is what's cool to have two side by side because, of course, every pretty much every absinthe you're going to smell, you know, that mm -hmm. little bit of um, those essences of those various, the Holy Trinity. But mm -hmm. it's the other herbs that people decide to use. Are they mountain herbs? Are they local herbs? Are they imported mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. something exotic? Yeah. Um, all right. So just wet the tip of your tongue once and let's see how sweet this is. <laughs> Oh my God. It's got a little bit of sweetness, but it's not like super sweet. Oh. <laughs> ER, yes. <laughs> yeah, you're not drinking it like you're drinking wine. That's for darn sure. That'll just rip the hair right off your chest, won't it? Yep. Whew. So um, now in theory, when you're drinking uh, absinthe, some people drink it straight, but some people like to have a sugar cube that's slowly dissolved with some water, and then that water ends up becoming a part of the program as well, and it will have it luge, which is really cool, um, releasing like this kind of making it look a little bit milky and cloudy. And you can see this has got, got a little bit cloudy, but it didn't really get milky. And sometimes it's the amount you have to add in order for it to luge. So let's see. Can you explain what that is? It's the oils in the absinthe that are reacting with water to make it luge. Okay. Um, so... That's absinthe. I mean, that's the first absinthe. What do you think? It's uh, it's something else. It's what, way stronger than I thought it was going to be. What if it were to have some sugar in it, like a sugar cube? I don't know if I would like that. Okay. You I, know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. I I'd, I'd, would love to try it that way sometime, but... I haven't done it that way in a really long time. I remember thinking it tasted really delicious for like two sips, and then I got really sick of all the sugar. Yeah. Um, I prefer to drink, honestly, my absinthe either straight like that, mm -hmm. or I'll add, you know, not equal parts water, a little less than equal parts water. Um, yeah. That's how I normally drink it. That's <laughs> how oh, I normally drink my absinthe. So we've got Valentin Magnan talking smack yep. about absinthe. How it makes everybody hallucinate. Fast forward 40 years of of him trying to get this banned, and we've got in the 1890s, we have 
or excuse me, like the late 1800s, so between I think it's 1880s, 1870s, there's a little louse called phylloxera that injects oh. its saliva into roots of vines, and then years later, you'll have you'll be left with a dead vine. Yeah. Takes you years to find out, and then back then they didn't know how to remedy that. So there was a wine shortage, and people, a lot of the wine trade, they didn't necessarily blame absinthe because, you know, obviously vines are dying. That's not because of absinthe drinkers. But they're saying, yeah. hey, support our wine industry, you know, b- drinking our wine. Like, wine is so much healthier than absinthe, so the wine trade was also in cahoots with the temperance movement to have absinthe being banned. Kind of the icing on the cake was, in Switzerland at least, was um, the Landfrey murders. This dude was jacked up on a lot of absinthe, but what a lot of people don't know or what they didn't really talk about during that time was he had had brandy, coffee, he had had a ton of other stuff to drink. He had like a liter of wine. And so he like came home and he, he was belligerent with his wife. He shot her, two of his kids. Okay. And then she had a bun in the oven. So he oh. was convicted of four counts of murder. Yeah. And within, I don't know, weeks, there were like thousands of tens of thousands of signatures to like ban absinthe okay because gotcha. it was yep. obviously absinthe's fault of course um yeah and then netherlands bans it belgium bans it and in the 19 uh, in 1912 we have um the united states there's a quote that absinthe is one of the worst enemies of man and if we can keep the people of the united states from becoming slaves to this demon we will do it Demon. A few, demon. A few years later, France, in most of the producing countries, it's banned. The only place that didn't ban it, I think the only countries were Portugal, Spain, and there may have been one other country that didn't. England, I think, never banned it. And so... England never banned it? England never banned it. England, I think, knew. Like, they talked about, yes, it's dangerous, but mm-hmm. it's not unlike any other alcohol. So okay. drink with caution. Yeah. At the time, they were having their problems with like gin and taxing and all kinds of other <laughs> stuff. So like, which is great. Yeah. Um, to read on that up on that history, but um, anyway. So now, uh, in this point in history, at least, it's a good time to probably talk about tritones because for now <laughs> we can't be drinking any. We're not drinking right. any absinthe. We can't have absinthe right now. So let's listen to some tritones. Uh, so we talked about church modes, you know, pre sixteen hundred. How. The tritone got a bad rap mm-hmm. from that era of music. Well, but then tonality changes. We get to harmony that's tonic dominant based and all this riffraff. Okay. And the tritone still is a problematic interval because of its dissonance. And one of the problems with the tritone is that it, it wants to go elsewhere and it can go two different places traditionally. Well, four technically if we're doing major minor, but we're just going to speak about major. So if we've got a tritone in a major key, let's just not even say a key. You hear a tritone, it can go two places. It can go out, it can go in. So it can sound like this. So there's the tritone first. Both resolve inward a half a step. Resolve meaning they sound prettier, they're more melodic. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Less dissonant. Less dissonant. We can also go this way with a tritone. 
or So people were what you're what it sounds like there is people are using it because I recognize that obviously it's oh, yeah. using so they're using it now but then they're resolving it yeah yep okay yep and it can go in a couple different places and then that's when it starts to get tricky when you stack them on top of each other because it can go in a bunch of different places and it ends up being a really versatile and flexible interval that then can be you know used in chords and the other great thing about it is it's symmetrical so. It's no, nobody else is. I mean, an octave, sure, okay, but it's six semitones, and there's only twelve in the first place. So, yeah, I mean, it's just completely, perfectly symmetrical. So, what it what is symmetrical? A tri- oh, the tritone. Tri- yeah. yeah, yeah. Got you. All six semitones. So yeah. cool. Yeah. All right. So. Um, after I plunge into a little more absinthe, you're going to diminish chord, correct? Yeah. I'll be super curious to hear about that. Um, let's talk about absinthe and how things started to look on the up and up. People started to realize in about in the early 1990s, I would say, that wormwood slash thujone was really not a hallucinogenic it wasn't any more dangerous than any other hard alcohol people were drinking, brandy, you in name excess. It. Yeah. Correct. And that there's thujone in oregano, there's thujone in sage, and we're eating a lot more quantities of those than we're drinking of absinthe on mm-hmm. a, say, weekly basis or daily basis. Also, some people were saying, oh, yeah, well, maybe there was just way more wormwood in back in pre-band days of absinthe. That's also not true. They've found old bottles. They've done chemical analysis that wasn't available back in the 1800s. Yeah. Um, and found that nowadays, in a lot of cases, there's actually more wormwood today <laughs> in, you know, a typical batch of something that's been distilled here locally than mm-hmm. there would be in, like, pre-band absinthe. So what happened was... You know, there's a lot of stuff wasn't regulated back in those times. Right. And so you had people using terrible quality base spirit. Like the base spirit was just like maybe a raw grain alcohol that hadn't okay. been refined. So people yeah. were having a lot of um, ethanol that wasn't m- maybe cut right when they were doing the cutting of the heads and the tails, um, the more toxic part of the spirit. Um, they were also adding col- copper sulfate. Um, to their, perhaps, um, to some of these where people were getting sick or having seizures or whatever. Um, That could have been for so many reasons, but they weren't due to, like, the fact that it was wormwood and the fact that it was absinthe. It was like, you know, just like anything nowadays that you're, if you're not good at making gin in your basement, you probably shouldn't make it because you might make someone ill. Okay, Um, so so you can't hallucinate from it. You're not going to hallucinate from drinking. what the hell? (laughs) <laughs> right? <laughs> um, well, what's great is nowadays, um, you know, in the, between 1995 and 2005, the EU lifted the ban, United States lifted the ban, they put a cap on the amount of thujone that can be in, you know, a bottle of absinthe with the okay. name absinthe on it. And lo and behold, there's a now a resurgence of absinthe. It lives again. Um, this is from... A dear friend, uh, Sonia, at North Shore Distilling, who they are uh, just north of the Chicago area in Illinois. 
And I remember, I want to say that they made one of the first absents in the country. Oh, wow. After the the ban was lifted um, that was legal and, like, prolifically, they don't make a ton of it, but that was, you know, available. And I remember she came to a place, a wine shop I was working at, and she was like, you know, this is our absinthe. And I was like, whoa, absinthe? Whoa, look at that color. Um, And was just mesmerized by it. So this is their siren, they call it. Um, It's done with 18 different herbs and botanicals in a (laughs) copper pot still. Um, They're using a copper still also at Jay Carver. Um, And yeah. It smells like perfume, like actual perfume. You know what I mean? I think it smells almost more like piney, like Hmm. resiny. Emily's going to smell number two now and then smell number one in the glass. And number two, as I mentioned before, uh, the siren from North Shore is like got a very deep color, like extra virgin olive oil-like color. It almost smells like there's juniper in there. There's something like remotely ferny, piney, junipery about it. Yeah, this one literally smells like perfume to me. Compared to this one, smells like the difference too is that number much two more like candy. So she's saying number one, the Jay Carver smells a little bit more like candied, and mm-hmm. number two, the North Shore smells a little bit more perfumey. Mm-hmm. The difference too is number two. I think has a little bit more of a blank slate because they're using local Midwest um, wheat and corn, so their their canvas is a little bit more honestly blank. Like they don't have that grape skin like notion kind of yeah competing with the other book. Not competing, but like trying to butt up against the botanicals. That's also going to be from a grape spirit. So that may add a, the sl- smallest element of fruitiness, even though it's quote-unquote neutral. Um, have you tasted yeah. the North Shore yet? No. God damn it. <laughs> that, is, that is hot. So this to me tastes stronger. My guess oh. is that the Jay Carver is not 120 proof. But notice how enveloping how herbaceous. Emily's making a whole lot of faces over there. Oh. I'm going to make this luge, so don't miss this. Okay. So I'm pouring a little water. See how that gets that? Yeah, like, it gets all cloudy. Yep. So we're releasing these oils. We're diluting the alcohol, of course, a little bit. Yeah, it's weird when it gets all cloudy. It looks like lemonade now. La fille verte. <laughs> yes. Doesn't it look like lemonade, though? Looks like uh, Slimer from Ghostbusters. Kinda. I like it much better that way. With a little luge? Yeah. And I and so now what would you think of like, let's say you only preferred a half a cube? Would you like it with a little sugar or no? I don't I think that would make you want to drink it faster or something. Like it would maybe I'd be willing to try it for sure, because I haven't tried it in probably well over six years that way. But yeah, um, I would love to try it that way for sure. But I don't know that I would prefer it that way. I would just love to have the experience of it. Diminished so, chords. Where are you going to go from 120 proof? <laughs> 
So if you interlock, so I, I've said a couple of times, a tritone, there are six half steps in between the bottom note and the top note. Divide that in half. Six divided by two is? Three. Okay. So if we go three half steps instead of six, that's a minor third. Okay. So one could then say, mathematically speaking, if you stack two minor thirds on top of each other, you're going to have a tritone on the outside. Is this, okay. making, is this making sense? I mean, yeah, if I were looking at a piano. Yep. So let's listen to a tritone. And let's divide it in half. So there's that. I shouldn't be talking over it, but tritone. And if we divide it in half, but on the outside you still have... Okay, so if we take that outside tritone and start with that middle note and make another, and make another tritone on it and stack those together, we have a diminished seventh chord, which, by the way, is perfectly symmetrical because everybody's a minor third stacked on top of a minor third stacked on top of a minor third stacked on top of a minor third, and then you get back to the beginning. Okay. So it's perfectly symmetrical. And that chord is used in a lot of special ways throughout the history of music. It can be used as a scary sound, right? Right? <laughs> cool, cool. Super <laughs> yeah. cool. Um, and it can also be used to get from one key to another key. There, there are a lot of cool things that can be done with a diminished seventh chord. So we're going to hear some composers doing some fun things with diminished chords uh, right now. Um, just for, I think, the sake of uh, impact, let's listen to something I didn't have you listen to, which is the end of uh, the second movement, a slow, beautiful, beautiful movement uh, from Beethoven, his 23rd Piano Sonata, which is, I think, probably my favorite one, maybe. Um, the end of that, into the third movement, we'll listen to what he does with a diminished chord there. So here we go. just arpeggiated a diminished chord. There it is again. And then that's how his the final movement starts. So it builds tension, right? Yeah. Very much builds tension, and that's because it's so dissonant and because it's expected to go somewhere else. And the 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 dissonance creates instability because we as listeners uh, are trained and are accustomed to things being consonant. So the dissonance... Like consonant, you meaning like sounds nice. Yep. Chromatic, sounds right? Har harmonious. Harmonious. Thank yeah. you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so dissonance creates tension because there's an expectation that it's going to resolve at some point. 
just sounds as, like life. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Hilarious. Okay. Yeah. So that's uh, one really good example, and um, I'd love to play a couple others. Really, if, if I could. Here's another example of Beethoven. Uh, he loved again. He loved this chord, so it, it's really kind of uh, easy to find really good examples of it in his music. So here's something from a very famous, another one of his piano sonatas, a famous one called the Moonlight Sonata, where he actually arpeggiates these chords and you'll hear him leap uh, in, in a manner like this. Uh, he'll leap tritones, like... Right? Okay, here we go. Now back to a normal minor. Back to diminished here. This is all diminished. So that's a good little section to hear how that's broken out. And maybe we'll end with some Bach in a little bit, but... I would love that. Yeah. So that's kind of it's a it's a good good well-rounded chord, but well, I think what we're, I'm taking away from this is that um, leave it to the <laughs> leave it to the church to <laughs> make things seem devilish when they're really maybe not because yeah. it seems like musically it's an incredibly tactical, beautiful way to create tension and instability and at the same time you're creating a different type of harmony you're creating um angst and then there may be relief maybe not depending you know upon it and same goes for absinthe you know people said that this was the green devil they blamed a whole lot of things on it and yes were people drinking probably a little bit too much of it um some very incredible playwrights and poets most definitely, but was that the root of all evil and the degrading of the French race? Not really. So yeah. it's a beautiful drink. Obviously drink it with a bit of respect and caution because it can sneak up on you, but it is quite historic and does does deserve the ceremony. You know, like if you are going to drink absinthe, it's fun to do it with a little bit of pomp and circumstance it deserves. Go online, watch a lot of YouTube videos. I'm almost buying a lot of paraphernalia and shouldn't, <laughs> but it's great. So is the reason the fountains exist, is that to help the luge factor, to help it get cloudy like it, that? It is. Well, it's number one. When you see them, usually they're communal, right? So a few people can do them at once. They've got like anywhere from one to, I've seen as many as six spigots. Mm -hmm. You're diluting... You know, if you're going to use a sugar cube, you're diluting your sugar cube. It's a way to have it very slowly. It can come out fast as well, but kind of like pounding on that sugar cube, um, the drops coming out of the fountain. And it's diluting your spirit and it's losing. So it's like okay. in theory doing kind of three to four things at once. Mm -hmm. If you don't need sugar and you're still by, you're only by yourself and you like a little luge, it's just going to do that nice luge dilution. Gotcha. Which is nice. Love it. Yeah. So good. I'd never had it in my life before, so this was a first for me. Yeah. Absinthe is a is an awesome black hole of deliciousness, and it's also um, a great, like, 
the Sazerac, which is a super important cocktail for people just starting out making drinks and they want to, you know, more know more than just like the handful of things that bartenders have to know. It's like you got to know how to make a Sazerac and you got to have a good absinthe to make a Sazerac. It's obviously the component in a lot of, um, you know, very important cocktails behind the bar. But um, I think it really, when whenever I am drinking something of the spirit essence, I like that it takes me somewhere, not mentally, but yeah. I like to know <laughs> why I'm drinking, like what about it fascinates me and the historical component of absinthe, not only the demise of absinthe, it's it's just like how it came to be. I mean, we're back in the like Greek times and you can like look at all kinds of old school books from like the 16, 1500s that have like wormwood recipes and drawings and it's it's gorgeous. Nice. So, to scores and pours. To scores and pours. Chug-a-lug, Emily Reese. No, I'm just not kidding. drinking it. Just kidding. <laughs> You're not? Oh, here. You can have the you can have the <laughs> daily one. Hold on. Take two. To scores and pours. Scores and pours. Thank you for listening to episode 16 of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scores and pours and Instagram at scores and pours. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scores and pours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan and I'm Paul Beach. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. This is... See that red thing going on there? This is for the Halloween special on this uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. So I need you to make an evil voice so that it isn't me. But an evil cackle. You yeah. keep saying an evil voice, but I don't know what I'm saying with that evil voice. Uh, you're saying... No, you're just laughing. Just laughing. Just evil laugh. I don't know if I can do that. Do an evil laugh. You can do it wrong ten times. La fille verte. If it comes to that, but like I bet you'll do it. You'll you'll. Okay, let's hear your evil laugh. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think you should do it. No, you try it. But it's moving. Do you know that? I do know that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't think I can. Come on, do I it. I can't do it on cue. No, just do 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 your like the weakest version of your of your. Pretending to make an evil laugh. But yours was so good. I think you should just use yours. No. The point is that it's not supposed to be good. It's supposed to be someone who is on the spot like yourself. Go on. Well, say something funny. But that's not an evil laugh. Like, no. An evil laugh is... is, An evil (laughs) laugh is I just, you know, slaughtered a child. Oh, I don't have anything. (laughs) Come on. You can do it. I don't have anything. Just just give a... It, it, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Ha 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 ha! really... That's, that's really, really bad. You, you told me to do anything. <laughs> I know, but that... But... but <laughs> be evil, evil. I don't have any an evil, evil laugh. Yeah, yeah. Pretend you're being the, your evilest self and, and then laugh. Ha 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 ha!
Like if you're laughing, like okay, say say a guy's trying to cross the street in a wheelchair, mm-hmm. and he hits a road bump, and he falls over, but he falls over in a funny way, and it's funny to you. How do you laugh? I don't. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's too much. Okay. I'm too tired. You do the one you did. Yours was better. All right, I'll do that one. Baby's coming to do one. All right. <laughs> Sorry. That's fair. That's fair. I've been I, working for like 25 hours today. So uh, I got nothing. Baby, come on. That's totally fair. <laughs> Sorry. I don't blame. I don't blame you. Come on, baby.